I want you to know that at the end of this message time, we will be having an ancient practice called the anointing, where with olive oil, if you want to, this is totally voluntary and you should feel no pressure, but you can come and have the shape of the cross on your top of your hand or, or your forehead. The, the olive oil is a symbol of God's presence. And by the end of the message, there'll be this moment where we might want to ask God to come into our lives in a new way, a fresh way. So you can be expecting that and preparing for that. And, but I want to underscore no pressure. It's voluntary. And then at the end of our service, I want you to know that we have um, some special guests with us today, some of our global partners, and we want to let you know where you can meet them. And then we also have an update on the Lillo family, uh, Nick and Barb. So please stay till the end so that you can receive that update. As we now prepare to receive God's word, the Lord be with you. In our leadership program, we spend one evening having the group reflect on this question. What kind of old person do you want to be? Now, I know for some of us in the room, you're doing it. You're there. <laughs> and we're watching. But it's a vision question, right? It's one of those questions that we ask to, to have a picture of the future which can give passion in the present. There's another kind of vision question that we should ask. What about God? Do you have a vision for what your relationship with God could be? Now, that's a difficult question because, frankly, and with reverence, relationship with God can be hard. I mean, God is holy, infinite, invisible, quiet. We are small and weak, distracted and doubting. So how do we have relationship with someone who feels far away, who we can't, whom we can't see and doesn't seem to talk all that much? Sometimes relationship with God is like the bickering monks. There's these monks, remote monastery in the woods, they have a rigid vow of silence. They can only say one, monk can say one sentence on one day of the year, Christmas. So years ago, Brother Michael said, I love these delightful mashed potatoes with our Christmas roast. That was it. 365 days of silence. And then Brother Michael came to speak. One sentence, these potatoes are lumpy and I despise them. Another 365 days pass, and then Brother Paul says, I am fed up with this constant bickering. <laughs> Sometimes that's how it feels. Talking to God, the responses can be so slow, so painful. But I have good news, right? I have good news this morning. The real question is, what kind of vision does God have for relationship with us? He's got a vision. He has a way that he wants to see relationship with us and him unfold. 
In a moment, we're going to read that vision. It's Psalm 131, but a little background. Remember that we're in the summer series called the Psalms of Ascent. They're numbers 120 through 134, 15 songs, each of them short and memorable because they were actually sung as Jewish families and villagers walked up to the temple in Jerusalem. And no matter where you were in Jerusalem, you always walked up to the temple. So they're the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, these songs, if you think about it, they were sung at least three times a year, Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer when commitments were made, and then Thanksgiving in the fall. So three times a year, these songs were sung. And because they were frequent, think about it, they were kind of maintenance psalms. You know, check in, how am I doing with the Lord? How am I connecting with him? What do I need to look at? What needs tweaked, changed? Maintenance, it's a good thing. You leave a fence post, you paint it white, you neglect it, it's black. You need maintenance. We need to maintenance our Christian walk. So today, a maintenance psalm, looking at our relationship and where God might want to break through. Now, let's read it together. And again, this reminder, this is God's vision for how he wants to have relationship with you. Follow along, I'll read it. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Now, you notice two things in this psalm, and we'll unpack both. The first verse, notice the knots. It's what David is doing, is inviting us into a walk of humility. Let's unpack it. And then after we get to the humility place, the second verse is an image of the kind of relationship God wants to bring when we are small enough to receive it. All right? It's a not verse, right? Not proud. The, the Hebrew is, is picturesque. It it's literally says, my heart is not high. It's not a pedestal existence. I'm, not, I, I'm resisting these narcissistic urges to see my reflection everywhere I look. No, I, I'm lowering myself. I'm, I'm making my world smaller, my place in it smaller. I am not on the pedestal. So my heart, my desire is not to be the center of attention, my eyes are not haughty. Again, very picturesque in the original language. It literally says raised eyes. So if your eyes are raised and you try to look at another person, what are you doing? You're looking down your nose at them. I do not compare myself to others so that I can feel better about myself. I don't live that way. I don't make those judgments. My heart's not high. My eyes are not raised so that I'm looking down my nose at you. And then it says, I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful. Both of those phrases, great matters, things too wonderful, almost all of the rest of the First Testament are used for God. God does great things. God does the wonderful things. So what David's saying is, I don't take credit in my life for the things that God actually is doing. I don't take credit. Now, let me ask you quickly. I, what do we have that hasn't been given? 
including our next breath. Really, what do we have? God gives us life. So David's saying, I won't be on the pedestal, I won't look down my nose at you, and I won't take credit for all the things in my life that God has actually given me. David is walling up ambition. He's curbing his expectations of what this world could actually give us. He is not running his own life or the lives of others. He's not inventing the meaning of the universe. He, he is not going to be the center of his family or his work. He's detaching. He is controlling that self-absorption and that, that self-centeredness. He is making himself small so that his life can be fuller of the essentials. What are the essentials? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. Chesterton put it this way. I have this taped in, a, in several places so that I'm reminded frequently. How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? Make room for the essentials by making yourself smaller in your life. Jesus put it in the positive. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think about this. Jesus says, you're flourishing when you're poor in spirit, when you don't have enough, when you don't have enough faith, when you don't have enough strength, when you don't have enough wisdom. By the way, I'm sure many of us walked into this room this morning frustrated about your relationship with God, discouraged about your relationship with God, guilty, feeling guilty about your relationship with God. I want to say something directly to you. First of all, if you're feeling that way, it's a sign that you're a Christian. Otherwise, why would you care? You're a believer. You're in the family. That's why you're struggling with this. That's why you're feeling badly. It's a good thing. You, you are poor in spirit. Jesus says you're flourishing. <laughs> He's, I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates it in the message paraphrase, that beatitude. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God in his rule. We don't like that. We don't like it by condition or by culture. Our condition is this. I mean, the signature statement of the human race is, me do it. We say it young and we keep saying it. Me do it. When Adam and Eve reached for that fruit on that tree of life, what were they motivated by? They were motivated that they wanted to become like God and were still enamored with that idea. Condition, that's us, that and our culture. Doesn't our culture highly value performance? I mean, you study hard, you get the good grades, you work hard, you get the good raise, you live well, you get good. You do good, you get a good life. That's our culture, American culture. Hardworking, well-educated, rugged individualists. If you work hard, you chase your dreams, you make it happen. 
That's our culture, the air we breathe. We're, we're like that grandmother, right? We're like that grandmother goes up flying with her grandson who just gets his pilot's license. They go up, great, smooth takeoff, flying around. He does a couple of passes over grandma's house, and she can see all her acreage and all her land. But the grandson looks over, and she notices the grandmother is like white-knuckling her seat. And like, really tense. So he does a few more passes, and then a smooth landing, and the family comes running over. She hops out of the plane, and, Grandma, Grandma, what'd you think? And she says, oh, I loved it, but I'm going to tell you a secret. I never let my full weight down. <laughs> That's how we are. We think our performance is really what's flying the plane. Mm-mm. So how do we say no in a condition, in a culture, where we always want to say yes, it's our performance that makes things happen? How do we say no? Two thoughts on that real quick. Uh, how do we make more room in our lives? How do we become smaller in our life? Two thoughts. One, you need a consistent and regular voice of reality. Do you know what that's called? The Bible. This is God speaking. He's actually not as quiet as we think. Every time you open this book and you read it, you hear his voice. It's the primary way that he speaks today. And so we need to make this a habit Five minutes a day, one chapter, listen to it on work, however you want to get it in. There's a hundred different ways to hear God's voice. But every time you hear it, you are having reality defined. Who is God? Who am I? What is going on? What's the story? Everyone believes they're in a story, even if the story is no God. That's a story believed by faith. Everyone has a story and believes it to give meaning to their life, the Christian story is told in this book. And every time we read it, reality is being defined, and we need that every day. I'll never forget being at a funeral a few years back. Matt Thomas, or Matt Ellis, sorry, Matt Ellis was uh, the pastor of one of our daughter churches down at Hampton and Wadsworth called Hope Crossing. And his grandfather, Grandpa Paul, had passed. And just before Matt was getting ready to preach the gospel, there was an open mic time to come and pay tribute to Grandpa Paul. And one of the first ones to the mic was Matt's oldest son, Jonas. He ran up to the mic and he said this. Never forget it. He said, I loved my Grandpa Paul. I will miss my Grandpa Paul because my Grandpa Paul taught me what men do in the morning." And then, as if he has DNA preacher blood in him already, he pauses. <laughs> and you're sitting there, what do men do in the morning? And then he says, men read their Bible and pray. The definition of reality. The second thing we do to make room for God to make ourselves smaller so that the essentials can become bigger, we not only listen to God's voice through the Bible, but we listen to his heart by remembering the cross. Paul put it this way in Romans when he wrote to them. He said, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The only reason we can have relationship with God is not because of our performance, but because of Christ's performance. 
because he lived the life we should have lived. And he gives that to us so that when the Father sees us, he sees that we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. Jesus, thy blood, thy righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. It's Jesus' obedient life that's gifted to us that makes the Father look and see us and says, you're righteous. You're declared righteous. You have the fitness for heaven. And then it's the death of Jesus that he died in our place for our sins that cleanses us and forgives our sins. So through the cross, we have forgiveness of sins and a standing of righteousness with God. So here in this performance culture, Christians stand up and say, wait a minute, it's not our performance, it's Christ's performance. I don't need a self-improvement plan, I need a savior. I don't need a righteousness resume, I need a redeemer. And even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Fred Smith was a businessman, he's in heaven now. He had an interesting retirement plan. He and his wife decided in their late 60s that they would begin adopting foster kids. So any of you retirees out there looking for something to do? Fred and his wife had this one kid. They had her for a year, teenager. She gave them fits. She would disappear for days and nights. And they wouldn't know where she was. Fred would continually lay down the rules and she would continually put her thumbs down on those rules. After the year, she disappeared. They never heard from her until years later, she appeared at their front doorstep. She said, I'm in college now. I'm going back to church. I'm dating a Christian guy. I said, all of it is because I've come back to Jesus. She went and said, do you know one of the reasons why? It's because of that prayer you had me pray every night at dinner at your house. They thought for a while, the prayer. Here was the prayer. God does not love me because I'm good. God loves me because I'm precious. I am precious because Christ died for me. That's the gospel. And it won her back. Do you know that kind of love and absorbing it every week. It's why we're here. It's why we do the liturgies. It's why we say the creeds. It's, it's why we sing. It's because we want to be absorbed again in the love of Christ because being absorbed by that love makes a person humble. And do you know, this is the year of neighboring at Waterstone where we're praying for our neighbors, we're engaging them in conversation, and we're inviting them to things like the last bash. Humility is a good neighboring tool. Have you ever thought about that? Being so captured by Christ's love that we become humble, small in our life so that the essentials become bigger, that's attractive to the world. I'll never forget reading the story of uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man, he and Tenzing Norway, the first men on the summit Everest. In the 80s, Sir Edmund Hillary became one of 24 living individuals at any one time by the British monarchy to receive the Order of the Garment. It's the highest honor a British citizen can achieve. He was also named as a high commissioner in India, Bangladesh, and Nepal. 
And one time in the 80s, Sir Edmund Hillary was back visiting in the Himalayas. Some people recognized him, ran up to him and said, can we take a picture with you? And they happened to have a, a climbing uh, axe. And so uh, they gave it to Hillary and they're standing there for a picture. And just about when the picture should be taken, some other climbers walk by. And they walk up to Sir Edmund Hillary and they say, wait, wait, you're not holding the, the axe right. And they adjust the axe. Sir Edmund Hillary thanks them, holds the axe that way for the picture, and goes on his way. Now, what do you think of those faux noir climbers who wanted to tell Sir Edmund Hillary how to hold a pack pickaxe? We're repulsed by pride. What do you think of Sir Edmund Hillary after this display of humility? Even more. Humility is a beautiful thing, and it attracts the world. Our humility, our being overwhelmed by the love of Christ is attractive. So, Paul says, I mean, uh, David says, as we sing this song, check this out in your relationship. Are you detaching from the things that are in the way? Are you making yourself smaller so that your life can become bigger? Are you making room for the essentials to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, your neighbor as yourself? When you do, this happens. Verse two, now the vision, the image. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child. I am content. Now, two things here. One, first of all, remember who's writing this. This song was written by King David, the most powerful, admired man of his generation. So you walk up to David. David, what's your relationship with God like? Fierce warrior, tell me, what's it like? David says, man, for me, it's like I'm becoming a little child, and I crawl up on my mom's lap, and I just say, hold me. What? Fierce warrior? David? You're like a kid on your mom's lap? That's what your relationship with God feels like for you? Wow. Didn't expect that. And then notice the language, right? Notice, I'm like a weaned child. Weaned child, twice. It's parallelism, saying the same things twice with different words. What's the purpose of parallelism in poetry? It's to get you to slow down. You can't speed read a poem. Let this sit, weaned child. So what's the image? The image is, it's a little kid crawling up on her mom's lap. She's weaned, which means she's not crawling up on her mom's lap to get dinner, to get her needs met. She's not going to sit there and be clamorous and noisy until she gets what she wants. No, she's climbing up on her mom's lap because she loves her mom and just wants to be with her and just wants to be held by her. A weaned child. Is that how you Picture your relationship with God. Can you? Do you like God? 
Do, do you ever just let God love you? Joe Briscoe is a great preacher in Milwaukee. She writes, not too long ago, I was babysitting one of our three three-year-old grandchildren. That's right, in our family, we had twins and a single birth within 24 hours. We call them search, destroy, and demolition. <laughs> I was to babysit demolition. As I waved goodbye to his parents, he looked perfectly all right. We read a little story out of his favorite book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I put him to bed, and we went to sleep. In the middle of the night, I felt a hand, and I turned on the light, and I looked at Drew, chicken pox from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Nana, he said, me's having a terrible, no good, bad day. Why should some things like this happen to I? I thought how like Drew we all are. <laughs> Why should something like this happen to moi? We cannot believe it. We cannot believe that God would allow something to happen to such nice people like us. I gave Drew a bath and porridge, oatmeal. It's a wonderful remedy. It takes away the itch. He swam around in this porridge bath, and then I took him out and wrapped his bumpy little body in a great big white towel. As I held him against my heart, he just kept saying, hold me, Nana. Hold me, Nana. Hold me. Faith is a condition where becoming more mature means becoming more like a child who dares to say, hold me, Father, hold me. How do we get there with God? How does his vision become shared by us? Two thoughts. Some of it involves habits. You need to regularly be disciplined enough to make room for this, to let God love you. Do you practice silence? Just sit somewhere and do nothing? Do you practice any kind of fasting or journaling or any of the disciplines of pursuing God? Let me give you a great resource that we use in our leadership program. I would love for every household of Waterstone to have this book, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. Just about 70 different ways to practice the disciplines of abstinence or pursuit. And you can do them with friends. You can do them as family. They'll enrich your life and they'll create space for you to say, hold me, Father, hold me. But, you know, it's as simple as taking five minutes and sitting out in the sun. As simple as listening to an Andrew Bird piece like we did earlier and just saying, Lord, this is a sweet moment and I'm with you. It's as simple as watching your children and your grandchildren and saying, oh yeah, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's as simple as a walk. 
It's as simple as sitting down and trying to do something big in Bible study and you fall asleep and take a nap and God says, yes, stop trying so hard. Will you make room? See, that's the question. You see, habits come from the heart. You always have time for what you really want to do. That gets to the heart. That's a desire issue. The real question is, do you want this? Do you want it? Let me probe on that just a, just a minute. I think I want to ask you some questions about your heart. First, is God enough for you? Have you accepted the order of creation that God makes and we're being made, that God reveals and we're responding, that God loves and we're being loved? The most profound theological truth you could walk out of here this morning with is this. There is a God and I am not him. Is he enough for you? Second question as we probe is Jesus enough for you? If heaven is less about seeing your loved ones again, less about a new body after our resurrection when Jesus comes back, less about streets of gold and a new heaven and a new earth, and heaven is most about being and seeing, being with and seeing Jesus, would you still wanna go? Do you know Jesus? And last, is God enough? Is Jesus enough? Is heaven enough? Quite frankly, to detach from the lesser things is going to take some motivation. And the motivation in this life is called heaven. Heaven gives endurance in this life. You realize, right, that the end of your life is just the beginning of life. You realize, like, that even if you're strong and you live to your 90, that's just a sliver of life if your existence is everlasting. This is such a small piece of what our existence will be. Is heaven enough for you? Second most profound theological truth? There is a heaven, and this ain't it. Is heaven enough for you? So in a moment, we're going to again read Psalm 131. We're going to absorb God's vision for the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. And then we're going to have this anointing. Let me just say, there's at least three reasons why you might want to consider the anointing. First, some of you here have never before entered Jesus' family. You've never before said, Jesus, I need you. I realize my performance, I can't make life work. I can't, I've tried, but I can't make it work. Nor can I make my relationship with you work. I understand that if I'm gonna have a relationship with you, it's gotta be because of Jesus. So some of you might wanna come and be anointed as a public way of saying, Jesus, I need you, and I'm giving myself to you. 
Second reason, some of you are in overwhelming circumstances. You've lost your jobs, you've lost your health, you're struggling in life, you're struggling with mental illness. All of these things that come into all of our lives and make us go through seasons of pain. Some of you are in pain. And really, what you need to come do is get the presence of God on you and say, Jesus, hold me. Some of you, you've heard during this sermon and you've seen the kind of relationship God wants with you and you have, <laughs> you've realized that God's really never moved, but you've moved. You've created distance. You've been distracted. You, you haven't had any habits. You, you haven't had really any desire to sit on God's lap. You need to come back today, get the oil, and say, Jesus, you are enough. I'm coming back. Let's read it together, and then we'll sing, and we'll open all the stations. If I could ask the servers and anointers to get in place, there'll be three in the front, three in the back. As you come, extend your hand if you want it on the top of your hand or your forehead, the shape of a cross. Let's read aloud together God's vision for relationship with us. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Amen.